Welcome to No Denying It. I'm Ezra Miller. There's a village in northern Canada where the engine never stops. One diesel generator or another has been providing electricity to Old Crow in the Yukon Territory for half a century. As it hums, it pours carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, annually the equivalent of nearly 500 transatlantic flights. And every liter of diesel that the generator burns to create power for this village of 250 is flown into Old Crow on an airplane, spending fuel to deliver fuel. The diesel generator hums as the caribou herd passes through, heading north to its calving ground in the summer. The generator hums as the caribou come back, heading through south to their wintering grounds. And just like the seasons are a constant cycle, the humming of the generator is a constant presence. Now we have an opportunity to shut off this diesel generator for the first time. Constant until it stops. For the first time in 50 years, we will hear the same thing that our grandparents heard, which is silence. First Nation. My name is Dana Tija Tram, and I am the chief of the Vantakwichin First Nation in Yukon, Canada. We live in a small remote village, the most northwest settlement in Canada. We are 80 miles north above the Arctic Circle. We live in a small village of Teach It or Old Crow, which is tucked in between the Crow Mountain and the Porcupine River. And uh, we live uh, a humble and on-the-land uh, influenced life. Plants, animals, snow, and sun all work together to create a bounty that has provided for Gwich'in people for tens of thousands of years. And now the village has found a new way to partner with the sun. These over 2,000 bifacial solar panels are seated right beside our berry patches where our elders harvest their traditional foods. Chief Tizia Tram has worked alongside youth in Old Crow to construct the Old Crow Solar Energy Project. And really, both of these mechanisms are really utilizing the same philosophy, which is really actualizing and capitalizing off the energy from the sun. And they're just diverting them in, in different ways. It may seem counterintuitive to turn to the sun for power in a place where winter can be so cold and so dark. But the other side of that coin is nearly 24 hours of sunlight a day in the summer light that can power this entire town in balance with nature. Chief Tizia Tram says it's a solution that just required a slightly different mindset. It's not the economy that's really holding us back. It's not technology, it's, it's about a narrative. It's about the principles that guide these tools because they work very well at what they, they aim to do. The only reason we're experiencing climate change now, it's not because of CO2, it's because we approached the planet with an unbalanced worldview. And so, of course, eventually the world became unbalanced. So if we can take some lessons and teachings from indigenous cultures, if we as individuals can hold a balanced view in our minds, then it's just a matter of time before the world balances as well. Chief Dana Tizia Tram spoke with our producer, Rachel Ward. So I was one of the first generation born out in my family. My grandmother and my grandfather traversed these lands. My grandfather actually was said he could run with the caribou at 19. And my mom was the youngest of 13. So uh, the majority of my family was born here in Old Crow. 
but my grandmother continued to move her family down south in pursuit of education to Dawson, Whitehorse, and eventually Vancouver. So I was born in Whitehorse. So you grew up in Whitehorse. How did you make the decision to come back to teach it? Well, that was a very long, long story, but um, I basically was homeless at 13. I had run away from home and um, gotten in with a very bad crowd and um, went down some some pretty scary roads, which basically showed me the, the limits of who I was and, and really got me to question what I wanted in life. And so I, I really struggled a lot with um, drugs and alcohol and violence and uh, gangs and, and this kind of stuff. And, you know, we know about intergenerational traumas and all of the sort in the mix. But, um, you know, it, it really became apparent to me that some of the next steps in the life that I was choosing, you know, was bordering on some very serious crime. And that was a line for me that I just couldn't cross. And so it really forced me to turn around and go back towards my center. And then in 2009, you moved down to Vancouver. But obviously you didn't stay because you're talking to us from Old Crow. So tell me a little bit about that. Living in the city of Vancouver, my first time really living in the city, I'd never been surrounded by so many people and, and felt so absolutely alone. But what really did it for me was my boss at the time. I was working at a world-class gelateria. Mm -hmm. And my boss one day offered me $90,000 a year stocks in the company and wanted me to open up another gelateria for him in Los Angeles. So he kind of put that on my plate one day. And uh, that kind of money, you know, it really makes you think that kind of security, job security. And, and you know, come on, I'm making gelato. I mean, yeah. it's 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 a good life. Like I'm, I'm making people happy, right? Yeah. Thinking about it for weeks and weeks. And finally, the day before um, I was to give my answer, I was lying in bed and I thought about my grandfather. And it is said that he will be the last man to have dog teamed from Dawson to Old Crow, which effectively you could say is basically like dog teaming across France with no, no help. It took him three months and he arrived in our village with more than what he had left with. If I were to do this and if I were to go to L.A. and possibly one day have a family, what would they be inheriting? How would they have a connection to our lands, our culture, and know the things that my grandfather knew about? And that's when I kind of realized that over money and over career, that there was a sacred context to the passage in our lineage. The linkages in our families as an oral people, it's so absolutely important. And I just decided that I was not going to be the broken link in the chain between my grandparents and, and their grandchildren. So I, I turned down the job and gave my boss my three months notice and uh, came uh, into Old Crow January 14th, uh, 2013. What was that transition like from Vancouver to Old Crow? So when coming to Old Crow, I, I was suddenly free. And, and the best way I can explain it to people is that if people ever grew up around a green belt and if they can remember like going out into the woods and, and building a fort when you were a kid and just that primal freedom and, uh, you know, just thriving within those spaces, that's what it was like as an adult. Now I was in a small village of 250 people, smack dab in the middle of 54,000 square kilometers of traditional territory. 
and I was just rolling around in it. I was out cutting wood, learning, fishing, hunting, trapping, going out to cabins, all over. And I will tell you, there are moments that I've had just in the rapture and and Monet-like serene paintings. They're, they're purely my own. I mean, to be way out on a trail, cutting wood at 10 o'clock in the morning as the sun is rising and the sun picks up all of the ice fog around you and cutting through the atmosphere in orange and pink, then you're suddenly surrounded in a pink mist. It, it's, it's almost as if the cathedrals that were built in Europe were trying to ascertain, you know, even a modicum of the majesty that, that happens on a minute-by-minute -minute basis out on the land. I imagine that um, that that Monet-like setting is uh, is changing, like what you see uh, is being altered by the effects of climate change. Could you talk a little bit about how you see the effects of climate change in your environment? Well, it can't really be understated the effects that we're seeing, not only the actual effects themselves, but the exponential that are to come. It's it's really foreboding. One very obvious one among many is the way that we had, I heard one elder put it, Trimble Gilbert from Bashraiko or Arctic Village. He had said that when he was a young man uh, out on the land, the whole entire night would be just a symphony of birds singing. And he said that it's, it's now it's quiet. And the way that he'd phrase it is the birds no longer sing to the Gwich'in people. And now I'm reading bird studies where they're deducing 60% loss of bird species in North America. Last year was the first time that our people had seen, as far as I had heard and we can remember, that the geese came before the black ducks. And the black ducks always come first, and, and then the geese come. But last year, it had changed. So we're seeing big changes in the bird populations, um, as well as some insect populations. Also, uh, some very visual cues are along the riverbanks um, on our land. We are now seeing what you would call drunken forests, which is that the banks are eroding, leaving the topsoil and the root systems. And as they begin to sag, you'll see the trees will begin to lean over the river. And this is happening all across the, the river systems. The caribou and their migration seems to be interrupted. We're looking into this and we're still not 100% sure what is going on, but it's almost as if they're confused. We see a lot of back and forth and they're not really occupying some of their traditional routes. It's basically everything that we can measure. We're finding change and, and some of them more scary than others. I'm hearing the elders say, I've never seen this before. We're starting to see thinner ice. So now we can't really rely so much on our historical experiences when traveling over rivers and lakes. You know, we've always have the possibility of air holes, for instance, which are really dangerous. And you really have to keep an eye out for on lakes, because if you drive over them, you can go right into the lake. And we know from data that there's higher methane now being released this creates more air holes through the ice and the snow, so more opportunities for us to go through. It's just, imagine if you lived in New York City 
And all of a sudden, there was sinkholes starting to develop over the main avenues and highways. Our roads are becoming dangerous. Our access is becoming dangerous. And it's the same for the animals as well, uh, as well as us. It's more, more, more of the change, more, more, more of the dangers, and less and less and less that we can trust um, our traditional knowledge in, in the areas where we used to be able to predict what the land was doing and how it was behaving. These effects feel so present when you talk about them. How much is, is climate part of everyone's everyday conversations? Are people... How do people talk and think about it in the community? Climate is, is certainly a, a really huge concern, and a lot of people are really concerned about it, especially the elders. Our, our elders are not, you know, really boisterous or exaggerated people. They're very humble, and you can tell from their messaging that they are unsure about what their grandchildren will be growing up in. They're, they're really concerned about it. And I think overall, we, as a small village, provide an incredible opportunity to the rest of the country and the world because if you look at the balance between modern practices and indigeneity, I say that the cutting edge is happening in the indigenous communities and in, in my village. So the cutting edge, let's talk a little bit about um, the solar project that you have installed in Old Crow. So the solar panel project was really born from our youth. It came from our youth, and this idea kind of began to permeate the community, and we really quickly received a mandate for this and to begin looking into this project for our people. And now today, we have the largest circumpolar Arctic Circle uh, solar panel project. It's over 2,000 bifacial panels hooked up to a microgrid system. Now, this project is really going to serve to satisfy 60% of the electricity needs in my community. Now, since the 70s, we've actually been flying diesel to the community to burn in a diesel generator to produce our electricity. So this really intrepid project is going to, as a solar panel project in the Arctic North, we have a lot of sunlight over the, the spring to fall. So we will be able to shut off the diesel generator from early March to late September on sunny days. The battery system can hold up to one hour uh, amount of electricity to satisfy the entire community as a transition to allow the generator to, to power down and shut off, as well as to get back online so it has a one hour grace period in which to do so. So we can make this transition through electrical sources generating sources without interruption to uh, the customers or our community members. What's the response in the community to the project? Are people like begrudging? Are they really into the idea of investing in sustainable energy? Like, How is it playing out? This is something that gets no resistance in our community. We're also uh, just finishing up some feasibility studies on biomass, and we have a MET tower that is to meter the viability of a wind farm in the community as well. So really, the main concern from the older generation and from our elders was, hey, you're going to put the solar farm on our traditional berry patches. You know, you don't disrupt our ability to get berries. So we kind of made a 50-50 deal. Okay, we'll put the solar farms there, but we'll ensure that there remains access to the berries. So 
this season, you're going to see elders picking berries right beside solar panels. The juxtaposition, it's romantic, you know, it's, it's incredible. And, and this newer technology allows my people to practice our traditional principles. Our community has every intention of being 100% self-reliable, self-sustainable. It's, it's really the way forward. So I think what we're proving to the world is that even a small village of 250 people can make massive strides, especially per capita, towards this. The real trick is decentralization and the empowerment of a community. You know, in, in the early 20s in the United States, every community had their own dairy farm and their own seamstress, etc. And when we move over to centralizing, what we're doing is taking away from the community's ability to provide for itself. And, and you know, cheap clothes are great and, and cheap milk is great too. But what if now, as we're starting to see, these major supply lines aren't really conducive to uh, the ecological foundation that we really exist from. I can tell you, if my people can thrive in an inhospitable environment that speaks to the ingenuity, the determination of humans, right? And I believe the same thing across our nations as well. I really believe that we have everything that we need to, to make these large movements. What we require is informed, respectful and focused discussions as communities, as neighborhoods, as municipalities, as regions. We can't just leave all of the work up to a CEO or just leave all of the work up to a prime minister or a mayor. And I think that's what I really want to open up is that not only are there solutions, we're already doing them. And if my community of 250 people way, way out in the bush can drive home these incredible, meaningful changes. We've got this and, and we can do this. We just need to do it together. You guys are, are a, a fairly small community and your fate is very much affected by the behavior of much bigger communities. So I'm curious about how you, what the strategy is for being heard and for, for letting people know like how much our behavior affects what you guys are experiencing. You know, as an Indigenous people that have been in this area for 30,000 years who have um, an oral culture that we still talk about stories that predate the written word of man. Our elders have shown archaeologists where they would find mammoth bones because we still remember that we used to chase them to, into these areas in the creeks to immobilize them for our hunting practices. So as a First Nation that is unlocalized from the rest of the modern world's worldview and their historical development, uh, we have a different feeling for space and time. And so we have an ability to really incubate a, a lot of those um, different dispositions and different worldviews and perspectives and, and gently marry them with some newer technology and bring something whole new to the world. So really, at the end of the day, I truly do believe deep down in my heart that we are holding on to ancient truths 
that we've been waiting a long time for the rest of the world to, to listen. And we are there as a partner for Canada and the world. It's just when they're ready to listen, we're here. That's actually a really good transition for um, the last two questions I had. We know that this show is going to be heard by a lot of people in leadership positions from the municipal to the national to the international level. And I wonder if if there's one thing that you guys need in order to achieve, <laughs> I mean, I would say goals, but like it feels like the goal is survival to some extent. Like what's one change that, that you need? Our worldview has been framed in unsustainable contexts. This is a time of innovation. This is a time of decentralization. This is a time to really take the affluence that is afforded to us in modernity and playing jazz with our systems. You know, this conglomeration of civil power, of political power, of industrial power served us very well. But this is really a time to kind of let go a little bit. Um, there are so many solutions out there. I mean, we've already figured out the hydrocarbon. We can synthesize that with sequestered CO2, put into chemical reactions with water. If we had 10,000 of these facilities, we'd begin reversing this. So we already have the solutions. They're all out there. So then the real question becomes one of us looking in the mirror. Well, what is it that we're fearing and are we going to let the system and our systems hold us back? You know, more powerful than any political system, any government, any army, any weapon is an idea that's time has come. So this is not a time to be holding back ideas. This is a time to put all the ideas down on the table and to begin electing the ones that will serve us the best. So when it comes to world leaders, you know, make those big promises, derive those mandates. Speaking from an indigenous government, we don't really have opposing parties, right? We're a collective rights kind of determinant in, in our organization. And really, we make our decisions thinking way back, like seven generations back to our ancestors and also seven generations into our future. So we have like an inter-chronological community, if you will. And that's what we really need in, in leadership positions. At the end of the day, there's no reason why our economy can't find whole new life and new industries and new fields. It's just, we gotta break away from the we can't and we don't and start asking those questions about why not and what if. That question is sort of like the bigger picture and I want to like narrow in and ask if you could give advice to ordinary folks, people who are listening to this show who might not think of themselves as having any particular power, but in the aggregate actually do. Um, what advice would you give those folks to find an entry point and like break through that paralysis about where to start? Educate yourself. And the first part about that is go ahead and read the IPCC and, and go ahead and get scared and get angry, but give yourself the emotional space and room to recover from that and take that fear, take that anger, move it into determination and, and start, start these projects, start these conversations in the communities. I can't get over how important that is. Nothing feels more empowering 
than being part of a solution. No matter how small, no matter how big, doing one thing actually helps you to feel better. This is not a time to just sit down and, and give up. You know, my people never did. You know, when we were on snowshoes helping our dogs drag a sleigh up a mountain, you know, the only reason you're hearing my voice now was because my ancestors never gave up. And that's something they're still telling me today. Don't turn around. You give up now, you're going to keep giving up in the future. Keep moving, keep going, keep breaking that trail. And that's something that from my people, we could share with everyone. Even though you may not be living out on the land, in those mental landscapes, don't give up. Keep moving. Your grandchildren need you. In 2019, Chief Dana Tizia Tram's community declared a state of climate emergency, calling for a pan-Arctic Indigenous climate accord. But it's not just way up north where climate change is threatening Indigenous cultures and livelihoods. As the world warms and snow is less frequent, people in the Himalayas face drought when seasonal snowmelt dwindles. Deforestation in the Amazon has displaced people from their homes and subsistence. Listening to the land reveals that all is not well, and it hasn't been for a while. But listening to the land also reveals the solutions, which means for those of us who don't have that deep generational connection to the land, it's time to listen to people who do. Our extraction-based culture, where we take and take and take from the earth is not sustainable. In order to stave off climate change, we need to internalize that simple fact and also make ourselves of service to the people who have long understood this. Learn about indigenous communities in your region. Seek out their voices and hear what they are saying about what needs to change. Ask how you can be useful to the movement and pitch in. Because before we can act wisely, we have to listen deeply. There's no denying it. No Denying It, the UN Climate Action Podcast is produced by UN News and Good To Do Today. Our producer at UN News is Connor Lennon, and Natalie Hutchison is our promo and distribution manager. Our producers at Good To Do Today are Emma Jacobs, Jay Venables, and Rachel Ward. Our managing producer at UN News is Matthew Wells, and our executive producer is Mita Hosali. Braden Alexander is our audio engineer, and our theme song is by Memory Palace, courtesy of Marmoset. Additional music from Marmoset and Artlist, and audio from Free to Use Sounds. Many, many thanks to Jenna Pell, Holly Bustamante, Fang Chen, Martina Donlan, Bartishta Jane, Robert Nashovsky, June Park, Ezra Sergi, Sam Tracy, Matilda Fellino, Freesound.org, and the UN Environment Program. You can find more stories about climate action from UN News at news.un.org.